What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off the Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Parker Lewis is the head of business development at Unchained Capital. In this conversation, we discuss Bitcoin, the value proposition, why people should care, and then we go through each of the latest writings of Parker, including the ones titled Gradually Then Suddenly, Bitcoin Can't Be Copied, Bitcoin Is Not Too Volatile, Bitcoin Does Not Waste Energy, Bitcoin Is Not Too Slow, Bitcoin Fixes This, and Bitcoin Not Blockchain. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do as well. Skirt, skirt. Want to know who has the best URL? Crypto.com. That's right, Crypto.com. They're a crypto platform with one goal, motherfucking mass adoption. That's why we're all here. We're trying to get crypto in every wallet. Crypto.com is helping people do that through buying, earning, lending, and card payment. Everything you could want at Crypto.com. Go help your boy out. Tell him Pomp sent you. Download the app or visit Crypto.com. Pomp's got you, always. Ever wanted to get into mining and didn't know how? Don't worry, your boy Pomp's got you. Everybody got some electricity and Wi-Fi. All you got to do is go to coinmine.com. You buy a coin mine. It's like an Xbox or a PlayStation that helps you turn your electricity into Bitcoin. That's right. You purchase it. It shows up at your doorstep. You pull it out of the box. You plug it in, connect to your Wi-Fi. Five minutes or less, you're mining Bitcoin. All you have to do is control it from the mobile app they provide. And then you receive over-the-air updates that add new coins and new features on a consistent basis. Kind of like how Tesla does over-the-air updates and updates the car software. Just you're updating your coin mine. Consumer mining made easy. That's right. Go to coinmine.com, tell them Pomp set you, and thank me later. As many of you know, crypto investors store their digital assets on exchanges or in cold storage for long-term safekeeping. However, this strategy doesn't help them grow their investment holdings or build overall wealth. With the new BlockFi interest account, Users can now securely store their Bitcoin or Ether at BlockFi and receive 6% annual interest paid monthly in cryptocurrency. 6% is an absurdly high rate. It's the best rate in the industry. I highly suggest you go check out BlockFi.com slash POMP. Again, that's BlockFi.com slash POMP to sign up and start earning crypto today. If you follow Bitcoin and crypto, you've probably heard of eToro. They're the world's number one social trading platform, and I love it. They've got more than 10 million other traders that love it too. And guess what? They just launched in the United States. eToro offers access to the world's most popular cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin, Ethereum, and others. With the smartest trading tools and the ability to connect with the best traders around the world, there's no better place to build your perfect portfolio. If you're new to Bitcoin and crypto, you can test the waters with their $100,000 virtual trading feature. But if you're more experienced, you can create custom technical charts and use eToro's social feeds to inform your trading decisions. They've got transparent fees, and so you never miss out. They also have an easy-to-use application available on iPhone, Android, or any web browser. You can get started today in just a few clicks at eToro.com. Again, that's eToro.com. Get VIP access to Bitcoin and crypto markets today. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, bang, bang. I am here with Parker 
Uh, we were actually just having a conversation and I said, stop, we need to just go record this so uh, you guys could all hear this out. Uh, thanks so much for t- doing this. Yeah, absolutely. Glad to be here in uh, Wyoming. <laughs> the whole blockchain task force, Wyo Hackathon. Um, happy to be up here and, and learning how we can help uh, Wyoming and advance uh, the Bitcoin community up here. For sure. Let's start with uh, just your background. Um, you know, you've kind of had this uh, this pretty interesting journey to Bitcoin, and then uh, once you saw it, kind of some of the things you've done. So just start with what you were doing before Bitcoin. Yeah, so I was working for a hedge fund, global macro hedge fund at the time in Dallas, um, Heyman Capital. It's a fund run by Kyle Bass, who you know. Um, you know. Kind of when I first started working there, it was distressed credit, long short equity, but over time, a lot of the focus of the fund was um, global macro. And so that was at the time that I was also starting to learn about Bitcoin, 2014, 2015. Mm-hmm didn't really start to click for me until 2016. Mm-hmm. Once it did, went full down the rabbit hole, partly as a function of doing research for the hedge fund that I was at, but also just um, you know, trying to re-educate myself on what money was. Um, and so the more that I started to understand not only why Bitcoin exists, but also how it worked, um, I became more and more convinced that what I wanted to be doing with my time was uh, not working for a, for a hedge fund, but going to figure out how I could um, contribute to the to the Bitcoin um, ecosystem and, cre- and create value. For sure. And so um, today, what are you doing? Because you were there, um, you did a bunch of work with Kyle, went really deep on uh, Bitcoin, um, how it fits into that global macro environment, um, what it meant for institutional investors to try to get access to it, etc. Uh, but now you've gone kind of full-fledged and jumped in uh, in the crypto world. Um, so you talk a little about Unchained and what you're doing there. Yeah, so I lead our business development efforts at Unchained, so um, helping to guide the strategy, um, you know, kind of form a vision around what it is that we want to be, and, and really what that is, is kind of recognizing a world where we're at this very early point in the shift um, in, in really the, the global monetary order. And if, say, a 1% of people own Bitcoin um, and 99% don't, how can we contribute to that and, and really where we focus our efforts is helping people better secure their Bitcoin. So uh, we offer a, a Bitcoin multi-signature vault, um, w- which allows people to control their own keys. And we aid in that uh, process and help add incremental security to someone who is currently facilitating self-custody generally with a single key. Uh, we offer also offer lending. One of our um, you know, monikers or, or principles that we that we live by is friends don't let friends sell Bitcoin. So <laughs> we, we also we also lend against Bitcoin, which which does have risks and trade offs. But but you know one of the primary reasons why people borrow against their Bitcoin is because they don't want to sell it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it represents a tax tax efficient way to access some dollar liquidity um, while preserving a, an appreciating asset and a very scarce asset. For sure. I love the friends don't let friends sell Bitcoin. Uh, internally, we joke all the time, uh, and it's a joke, but we say uh, selling's for non-believers. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Same, yeah. same sort of uh, theme there. <laughs> yeah, and it's and it's really one of the other things that I've started to work on as, as part of my function with Unchained is a new series that I've been writing um, on on Bitcoin and, and kind of helping helping others um, in, a, in hopefully a more accessible way to understand um, partly my path, but then also um, in just a, a broader educational effort to, to help um, people understand what is a very complex medium of, of why you don't want to sell Bitcoin and why you why you should be uh, accumulating it because um, I think for anybody who's around the periphery they can they can see from the outside looking in a very volatile asset you know why would I ever do this it seems um, 
you know, very esoteric um, and very complicated, which it is, but the more that you understand about how it actually works and why it exists, the more conviction that you have, and as a consequence, the, the greater your ability is to, to, to manage you know, your, your own exposure to it, your own portfolio, and, and to, to remain in it um, and to t- tolerate the, the significant swings. For sure. So I definitely want to get into the writing because, uh, frankly, it's fantastic. It may be one of the better series that, uh, that I've ever read. Um, but before we get into that, let's just talk about Bitcoin and the global macro environment, right? So, um, you, you know, you had the pleasure of working closely with, uh, with Kyle uh, Bass on this, who we've had on the podcast, and I think has a lot of, um, you know, um, I, w- I would say powerful thoughts around global macro and, and then something like Bitcoin, how that fits in. Maybe give us your view uh, on where does this fit in and then um, how do you see that evolving given some of the macro environment developments that are occurring today, whether it's the U.S., you know, the repo market issues that we're seeing, China, Hong Kong, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And that, you know, um, kind of, you know one of the ways that I also came to Bitcoin um, was I was independently doing research um, for Heyman on Bitcoin specifically, but Separate and apart from that, I was also doing work on the financial crisis. Um, you know, obviously Kyle has history having shorted the subprime crisis. I wasn't at Heyman at the time, and, and just so people understand. Um Kyle is probably one of maybe six people who uh, not only shorted the housing crisis, but made a very large bet from an aggregate dollar amount, um, obviously was correct, uh, and kind of built a reputation around um, having this contrarian thought that ended up proving out. And so that's what, uh, that's what Parker's referring to. Yeah, and so at the time, this was 2016, 2017, mm-hmm. the Fed had um, begun to, to or they had basically tapered their um, incremental purchases. They had begun raising short-term interest rates, um, but, they, but they hadn't touched the balance sheet. And so the work that I was doing independent from the research I was doing on Bitcoin was really understanding the, um, the transmission mechanism of quantitative easing mm-hmm. and trying to understand what then would happen when the Fed unwound its balance sheet, which it, which it ultimately began in uh, November of 2017. And so as I was going down those parallel paths, um, they ultimately converged with the principal conclusion that essentially where um, QE starts and ends is really the, the why of, of, of Bitcoin in terms of what it is here to disrupt mm-hmm. um, and what problem it ultimately solves. And so the the way that I the, the way that I look at the macro world is, um, and, and this is something that you know is part of my own education in, in kind of reading uh, resources like the Bitcoin standards, but but really re-educating myself or, or really educating myself for the first time on what the question of what money is, mm-hmm. and and I, and I think that's really the context that people need to to think about Bitcoin is um, you know it is competing with the legacy monetary system. Mm -hmm. And in principally, the dollar as a reserve currency, the euro, the yen, um, really fiat systems anywhere. Mm -hmm. And when I think about um, kind of the Fed and the global context, it is that the, the global credit systems and the way that they're constructed require not as a possibility, but as a necessity for those systems to continue to exist QE is an inevitability. Mm-hmm. Um, without additional QE, those credit systems would collapse on, on themselves. And so mm-hmm. I think and we can talk a little bit about what's happening in the repo market. But, you know, if, if we expand out from, you know, kind of the, the initial kind of 75 billion of injections, it is 
you know, there's a lot more to come. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not in the, in, the, in the order of magnitude of tens of billions. It's, it's trillions of dollars. And it's not just the Fed. It's the ECB. And it's, and it's the Bank of the Japan. And it's, and it's really any central bank that, that has the ability to do it. And the, the root cause of that is that the financial system as it's constructed is massively levered. So mm-hmm. if we just think about the dollar system alone, there's about $73 trillion of dollar-denominated debt, excluding derivatives, just fixed liability, fixed maturity, as tracked by the Fed. Um, today in the banking system, there's only about $1.6 trillion actual reserves. Um, so every dollar is essentially leveraged 40 times over. That is the consequence of 30 to 40 years of every time the credit system has tried to readjust or has tried as a system to delever, um, essentially been um, in a been sustained as a function of smaller QEs along the way that mm-hmm. ultimately re- lead to um, kind of instability in the credit system, which we're starting to see where you know, you know if banks want to access overnight credit in in the repo markets paying 10% interest, like that is a sign of liquidity strains. The only way to solve liquidity strains is to put more base money in. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we're seeing with repo. I think what we'll see very soon from there is, you know, more large scale asset purchases. So QE4, um, QE infinity. And then when you think about that in the context of Bitcoin, if the if the Fed system or the or the ECB system or the Bank of Japan system is de- dependent on a expanding credit system, it is de- as a consequence dependent on an increase in the base money supply. Mm-hmm. Bitcoin, as a fixed supply reserve asset, um, outcompetes that, and so for people who have the ability to opt out of the legacy system, um, and as they educate themselves on Bitcoin, they will see the contrast where each time, you know, every 10 years, or I think increasingly so, uh, we either go into a form of uh, a credit crisis or an expansion of the base money supply, people will increasingly start to ask questions and say, hey, maybe this is why Bitcoin exists. Maybe this is a better alternative. And ultimately, what we're going to see on the free market is a, is a competition between two monetary systems, the legacy system that's dependent on future rounds of QE, or a, a free market system that tolerates volatility, but um, at the root of it is is backed by a fixed supply. For sure. And, and so, you know, look, there's a ton here. And I think part of what makes it so exciting to, uh, you know, folks like you and I is that um, it's a very complex analysis, right? You have to understand um, what is money. You've got to understand some of the macro stuff. You've got to understand QE and central bank um, kind of incentives and, and uh, tools at their disposal. You've got to understand Bitcoin, its technology, its monetary supply, right? There's just a bunch packed into uh, what is a pretty simple um, analysis, do I get exposure to Bitcoin or not, right? Uh, you keep bringing up this idea of like, what is money? Maybe talk a little bit about just like how you describe that to people today. Yeah, and again, this is something that I think you know, most people have never asked that question. Mm-hmm. Um, and I certainly, um, I myself, up until four or five years ago, ha- hadn't asked that question. Same. Um, and I think that there are um, especially those that, that look at the dollar system, there's confusion as to, or, or there's explanations that it's, that it's just a, a collective hallucination or, or money is just a belief system. But uh, I think at a root level, it's a, it is a man-made invention, but it is a tool that enables um, specialization and division of labor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think in, in that context, and, and as I've educated myself, uh, Nick Zabo is shelling out, uh, Saif Adina Moose's uh, Bitcoin standard, think 
thinking about kind of really at a first principle level why it is, you know, let's just you know, restrict it to a conversation about the United States. Why are 325 million people all walking around, you know, willing to accept this form of of paper mm-hmm. or the digital representation of that paper um, in exchange for real world goods and services? And 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 I think that that discussion as to, to how the dollar emerged and why the dollar exists is is a, is a complicated um, kind of discussion. But ultimately, I think what people have to recognize is that. There is rhyme and reason to money. There are mm. inherent properties that make something a better or worse form of money. And that also our current economy and, and, and how complex it is with the degrees of specialization, the degrees of division of labor, um, our economies don't work without money. Mm-hmm. Um, and money is ultimately the, the, the good that facilitates the coordination of all other economic activity. And that when we think about the properties of money, of, of something that makes something a better form of money versus a worse form of money, um, kind of if we were reducing it to a few, few topics, it's relative scarcity. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the, uh, the ability to transact. Um, so the, the divisibility of that unit, fungibility. There's a lot of discussion in Bitcoin whether Bitcoin is sufficiently fungible, and I think there's ways that you know Bitcoin will become increasingly fungible. But where we sit today, um, I view Bitcoin as equally as fungible as the dollar. Um, and so when we think about relative sc- scarcity, uh, divisibility, uh, portability, when you start to think about Bitcoin relative to other goods in the market, um, that is why it's emerging, and, and, and for the principal reason um, that it is finitely scarce. And prior to Bitcoin, um, no form of money was finitely scarce. Now, the explanation as to, to, to how and why Bitcoin is scarce is really, really the, the, the tangible question that when I talk to people, that's what I what I tell them to try to understand, mm-hmm. uh, because it because it isn't just some coincidence that it, that it, that it's finitely scarce. There's um, an interplay between um, the technical architecture of Bitcoin, the way that Bitcoin's consensus mechanism works, but also the economic incentives of the underlying currency that tie everything together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think that the whole idea of this like finite scarcity um, is, I, I use like real estate all the time, right? I say, look, if you look at the city of Manhattan, for example, it's an island, they're not gonna make more land. And so what ends up happening is as more and more people want to move there or um, have ownership of that land, the price increases, right? And all of that is just simply supply and demand economics, um, which is a very uh, simple idea. It's something that's taught in you know economics 101 and things like that. Uh, but because it is so simple, a lot of folks who um, either don't buy into um, the Bitcoin story and, and thesis uh, or those who ignore it, um, I think it's just that they overlook the simple thing. Right. And it's almost like it's so simple that they're like, no, there has to be something more. There has to be a more intellectually uh, driven conversation. And some of it you're hinting at, you know, kind of once you get past that supply and demand. But ultimately, that's where the, the quote unquote U.S. dollar value comes from. Right. It's just as demand increases. If you have a fixed supply asset, the price has to go up unless all of a sudden supply and demand economics are in balance. Right. And I think that, you know, I think people fall out on, on, on two sides of this where, it, you know, the first question is, I, I don't believe that it's actually scarce. Yep. Um, and, and there's a lot of confusion around how and why that is or, or why it's not the case that, uh, well, if I just create another uh, cryptocurrency that, 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 that represents 
you know, in aggregate digital currency inflation. And so there's there's confusion around both of those points as to, to whether or not, you know, Bitcoin independently can maintain a, a scarce supply or, or how to think about that scarcity relative to other digital assets. Um, and then beyond that, you know, and this is something that I struggled with myself, it was this concept of, um, well, if, if Bitcoin has a fixed supply and its, and its value continues to rise, um, you know, if, if Bitcoin's... T- 10,000 a coin or 100,000 a coin is too expensive for people to, to get. And really, um, that, that, is a, that is a mental block that people have to work through where it's, you know, the way that I, you know, and one of my friends helped me think through this, it's actually the, the more valuable, you know, what, you know, one Bitcoin is an arbitrary unit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the way that I think about it is the economic, I think about it as an economic system and the purchasing power of the network as a whole. And so if that's approximately 200 billion today, mm-hmm. um, the more valuable that Bitcoin is, the more valuable it becomes. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the less of a unit of Bitcoin that you need to, to transmit value over a communication channel, that, mm-hmm. val- that network is actually more valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, the people struggle with the fact that, well, you know, how how is the rest of the world going to be able to to access enough, you know, a, a certain percentage of the network to make it significant enough? And it, and, it, and that that really isn't the point. It's you just need a piece of the network. Mm-hmm. And, and and as more people adopt Bitcoin and as it's met with a fixed supply, the the the, the, the the overall value of the network increases. It's not just that Bitcoin, you know, denominated in dollars increases. It's that the the, the communication channel as a whole mm-hmm. increases in value because there are now more nodes connected to it. If there are only 60 million people transacting in Bitcoin, that's very limited. But if a billion people own Bitcoin and are transacting it every day, the value of that network increases. And the only way to get there is by incremental adoption, which ultimately increases the value of Bitcoin. It, it's the cell phone example, right? It, just one cell phone in the world isn't very valuable. Even just two cell phones in the world isn't very valuable because you can only call one other person, right? It's when you have an entire network of thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds, and then ultimately millions of devices. Now that network becomes much, much more valuable because um, each person who joins is actually driving value in that network to you know some point. Um, and so I think that you know that example is not exclusive to money or to Bitcoin. It exists in other markets. We just don't think of them that way. Right. Yeah. And and, and really, when you kind of get into to various different layers of Bitcoin and start to understand the network effects, um, it is, you know, the more people that, that come into Bitcoin that just want to purchase it as an asset and, and use it, you know, whether for speculative purposes or increasingly over time as they learn more as a true store of wealth and, and as a way to to convert the value that they create into to you know what we all believe in the future will be a, a stable form of money, um, that increasingly those people then um, begin to actually contribute value by building infrastructure. You know, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think it's an, it's probably an overuse, and I overuse it, but Rome wasn't built in a day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you don't have to be building infrastructure for Bitcoin or contributing as a um, as as you know, either an investor or as somebody that that is curating content or creating content. Um, if if you create value in the real world and then choose to store that in Bitcoin, you are increasing the value of the network as a whole. For sure, holders are users, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then that's you know the what money is is a store of value, mm-hmm. and that um, if if we think about it at a root level of of converting time to value to, to Bitcoin or a form of money. Um, and, and Safe talks about this in his book where kind of thinking about um, kind of the time preference or what I consume today versus what I consume in the future, anything that we're choosing to, to, to save um, is 
putting off what we could consume today for some for, for some future investment. And and I think that there are serious, um, not necessarily consequences, there are, there are massive ramifications as more people start to think about uh, time preference, high time preference, low time preference, how they choose to, to spend today versus save, and then kind of how they how they how they think about the, the, the trade-offs. And I think this is a concept that Safe talks about and it's really interesting where where he talks about, you know, you know, macroeconomics and and macro economics think about um, kind of the, the, the trade-offs in transactions between different participants in an economy, whereas time preference is more of a, a trade-off between you, you, yourself and your future self. Mm-hmm. And so kind of thinking about Bitcoin in that context, the, the more people that are choosing to store wealth in Bitcoin in, in a stable form of money, there are, there are um, I think, there will be um, ramifications far greater than just, you know, Bitcoin and the dollar and, 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 and the Bitcoin monetary system and the legacy monetary system. But if you have a, a world of a, of a billion people that now are, are operating in an environment where there's a reintroduction of opportunity costs of money, um, there will be a, an increasing focus on productive activities. And so um, I think, you know, it's far ranging in terms of the impact. For sure. So I want to jump into uh, this series that you've been writing. Um, first of all, where can people go find the series? And then we'll kind of go point by point of each uh, each of the ones that you've published recently. Yeah, so I publish generally every Fridays. I have, you know, there have been a, a few things that have come up that have prevented the last couple of weeks, but I, I release it the the uh, a post every Friday, and I post it on Twitter. But then you can find it on our on our blog at Unchained Capital uh, slash blog. Got it. Um, all right. So the first one, uh, it, it was kind of like a shot over the bow because I, I didn't even know this was happening, and then all of a sudden you write this thing uh, gradually, then suddenly. Describe, um, you know, kind of at a high level, what exactly you were trying to communicate in that first piece. Yeah, so, um, and one, to, to, to give some credit, um, kind of over the course of the last year or two years, I'd seen uh, Marty Bent writing a, a, a daily newsletter. Shout out, Marty. Yeah, I, and I know you write a daily uh, or daily or weekly newsletter. Safe wrote a book. You know, one of the things that I, I think, you know, yourself and uh, Peter McCormick yesterday echoed that education is such a, a critical piece. Mm-hmm. And so, and I've, you know, um, benefited immensely from the the content that others have created mm-hmm. um, we um, as an organization kind of while we're, we're trying to serve a um, certain kind of per- segment of the market that values self-custody today we also want to to help expand um, the the knowledge base mm-hmm. and and bring more people into bitcoin and i think from from my past having worked at a global macro hedge fund um, now kind of working every day within within the, the Bitcoin spheres, um, kind of helping to create a bridge or, or an accessible medium that, that isn't necessarily, you know, as long as a book, but that can give, um, whether it's family offices, other institutional investors, a, a look through into my own thought process mm-hmm. as to how I've arrived from not ever questioning what money is to being, you know, Every day, full time, working on on building infrastructure for Bitcoin, and and so so that that was the primary goal. It was to to really distill for myself, but then um, you know to create a, a depository or, or, or a repository of not necessarily academic, but just educational resources mm-hmm. to hopefully, if people are interested in the question of why are so many people interested in Bitcoin, that that they can come and, and think about things that, that generally represent mental blocks. That's one mm-hmm. of the things that I, I try to focus on is is distilling complex subjects that, that hang up a lot of people mm-hmm. um, and explain at least, you know, in, in 
you know, the context of my background and, and the way that I think about it, um, how you know, they may think about a certain problem that, mm-hmm. that may prevent them from um, kind of advancing their, on their path of, of seeing Bitcoin as money. For sure. And, and, and so the, the idea of gradually then suddenly, um, as you look at this, is this kind of the starting point of where you think people can, you know, kind of enter into this, the mindset of this isn't just speculative asset. There's an actual um, kind of more macro, um, you know, uh, kind of systematic uh, perspective to look at this specific currency. Um, and that's why you started there. Yeah. Um, yeah, really kind of providing that 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 big overarching thousand foot view mm-hmm. the question of why mm-hmm. um, and that and that's really where I started the piece um, and, and the reason why I termed it gradually then suddenly it's um, it, it was a, a term penned by by Hemingway and I think that the sun also rises but um, it was also the idea of you know one how how people go bankrupt kind of gradually then suddenly that's that's very much how I think about the concept mm-hmm. or context of of the fed's economic system where it is a massively levered you know probably massively insolvent system um, and it's and it's happened very gradually but then when it unwinds it happens suddenly mm-hmm. um, I think that the first crack in that facade was was the financial crisis um, but then it's also kind of also applies to the context of how I came to Bitcoin mm-hmm. um, when I was Thinking about it, kind of like I, I thought of myself as, you know, st- you know, staring at a wall that had a mural on it, but only seeing a blank canvas. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there were there were a few kind of conversations or kind of talking with my friends who who had been involved in Bitcoin for a long time, where then suddenly something clicked for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like in certain cases, I specifically remember like the the place and time where I was, mm-hmm. you know, what the specific specific mental block was, and then what it was that helped me um, kind of overcome that. And so. You know, a primary reason for writing this is is thinking back to the that that kind of process that I went through, and then trying to distill those thoughts down so people can start there, and then they can move on to to more longer form mm-hmm. subjects like the Bitcoin Standard or um, Mastering Bitcoin, which I believe mm-hmm. is a great resource, um, as well as Inventing Bitcoin by Jan Pritzker. So, um, really, it is for people who are you know have that question of what is this thing. Um, it pro- presents. You know, a digestible, accessible medium, generally 3,000, 4,000 words where someone can sit down um, and then kind of start to peel back the layers of the onion. For sure. And so the second piece you wrote was uh, Bitcoin can't be copied, which, um, you know, is a, uh, a pretty common yet relatively uh, lazy, I think, uh, detraction of just, oh, there's Bitcoin and there's 2,000, 3,000 other tokens, right? So like, it's just the same thing over and over again, what differentiates Bitcoin. But maybe talk a little bit about um, you know, some of the thoughts in that piece of uh, Bitcoin can't be copied. Yeah, and, and I think it is a very, uh, maybe shallow isn't the right term, but it's not uh, a deep thought process, That, but it is one that's prevalent a lot among a lot of people on the periphery, this idea that, well, you know, yeah, there's 21 million Bitcoin, but the 21 million Bitcoin cash, or, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know how many Ethereum there will ever be, but um, this idea that um, copying Bitcoin or creating a new digital currency does not replicate the monetary properties mm-hmm. that are inherent in Bitcoin. And I think that, I think this is the way that I communicated in the piece. It's, you know, as kids, we're all taught that money doesn't grow on trees. Mm-hmm. Um, and then suddenly Bitcoin 
you know, has its immaculate conception. And, you know, the, the way that I think about it is it catches lightning in a bottle. Mm-hmm. Um, when Bitcoin was released, it wasn't money. You know, in the, in the days subsequent, it wasn't money. In the probably years subsequent, it wasn't money. But that over time, monetary properties emerged in the network. And it's a little bit confounding to me that, you know, we're, we are where we are at today in Bitcoin, where it's this, you know, emerging monetary technology protocol that, you know, currently has a purchasing power of about $200 billion. Um, and if we look back in history and, and, and kind of skip past the, the emergence of, of fiat systems, which leverage gold, but, but really thinking in the context of monies haven't emerged on a free market since gold and silver, mm-hmm. um, and, and those emerged over the course of thousands of years, here we are sitting with this you know, new form of monetary technology and Everyone suddenly, you know, despite being taught and despite being at hyperintuitive that Bitcoin or that money doesn't grow on trees, oh, let's all just go create our own form of money. Mm-hmm. And so the the point of that piece, Bitcoin can't be copied, was was really trying to emphasize the um, the things that make Bitcoin unique mm-hmm. and in some base layer to think about why monetary systems converge to one, um, why you know an economy converges around a single medium of exchange and ultimately uses that medium of exchange as a unit of account, um, that while it, while it should seem intuitive that everybody you know around the world shouldn't be able to create their own money, they in fact can't, and it's really based in um, the, the, the monetary properties that have emerged around Bitcoin, the censorship resistance, the decentralization, and ultimately those two kind of properties that, that are not inherent in other cryptocurrencies um, that really reinforce um, the scarcity that is Bitcoin's 21 million supply. Because without those properties of decentralization, without censorship resistance, 21 million is not a credible number. Um, but so long as it is, and so long as the value of Bitcoin increases, the network becomes increasingly decentralized, increasingly censorship resistant, which further reinforces the the credibility of a fixed supply, which will continue to cause um, really cause value to converge around the Bitcoin mm-hmm. network because it's a better form of money. Yeah, and it's interesting because a lot of times I talk about, um, or, or my answer to the question of like, what is Bitcoin? Is Bitcoin is something different to different people, right? And so these elements of um, non seizability, non censorship, the hard cap, um, you know, it, it, just a whole bunch of different aspects or criteria um, that have formed for uh, this value that you're describing. Certain people find different aspects of that more valuable than the other aspects of Bitcoin, right? So if you're sitting somewhere and you're worried about people seizing your wealth, all of a sudden the seizability or, or the lack there of it uh, becomes super, super important, right? If you're sitting there and you're worried about um, censorship, well, now the fact that it can't be censored becomes really, really important. And it's not so much just that uh, one group over another group finds certain elements uh, more valuable than others, but also you as an individual may find different elements more or less valuable at different times as well. Right. You could see a world where um, at one point in time, you actually really care about the fact that it's not seizable. But then at another point in your life, um, you know, in a relatively short period or over a long period of time, now the censorship becomes important or the monetary policy becomes important. And so the, the fact that um, there is such a decentralized governance to this and the lack of um, kind of rapid change really allows people to find what's most valuable to them, in my opinion. Yeah. And I also think about that. And I believe I wrote about this in the, in the initial piece that I did. Is that everybody has to come to this relying on their own life experiences? Mm-hmm. If they if they just looked at this simplistically based on what they had been taught in high school or college or you have know, you know, 
just looked at a, at a incumbent economic view, they would never come to the view that Bitcoin is money in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Um, but that over time, as people look at this, they relate to it you know, through their own eyes and through their own lens. And Bitcoin emerges as money to each individual for different reasons, re- reasons on different timelines. And then the aggregate consequence of that is that these properties emerge in terms mm-hmm. of the overall network. Mm-hmm. But that, um, you know, Bitcoin, there wasn't a sudden point in time where Bitcoin became money. It becomes money to each individual as they educate themselves and as they, you know, kind of form a mental model as to how to think about it or what properties of that network are attracted to them. But then it's also in the context that it's always relative to something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I am choosing to, to store my value in Bitcoin, I'm choosing not to store it in another monetary mm-hmm. network. Um, but but you can't do that in increasing ways without having formed your own perspective as to kind of how this helps you not only today but into the future. And that's that that will always inherently be you know dependent on kind of each individual's own circumstances, their own life experiences, and their kind of the the way that they look at the world. Skirt skirt. Want to know who has the best URL? Crypto.com. That's right. Crypto.com. They're a crypto platform with one goal, mother mass adoption. That's why we're all here. We're trying to get crypto in every wallet. Crypto.com is helping people do that through buying, earning, lending, and card payment. Everything you could want at crypto.com. Go help your boy out. Tell him Pomp sent you. Download the app or visit crypto.com. Pomp's got you always. Ever wanted to get into mining and didn't know how? Don't worry. Your boy Pomp's got you. Everybody got some electricity and Wi-Fi. All you got to do is go to coinmine.com. You buy a coin mine. It's like an Xbox or a PlayStation that helps you turn your electricity into Bitcoin. That's right. You purchase it. It shows up at your doorstep. You pull it out of the box. You plug it in, connect to your Wi-Fi. Five minutes or less, you're mining Bitcoin. All you have to do is control it from the mobile app they provide, and then you receive over-the-air updates that add new coins and new features on a consistent basis. Kind of like how Tesla does over-the-air updates and updates the car software. Just you're updating your coin mine. Consumer mining made easy. That's right. Go to coinmine.com, tell them Pomp sent you, and thank me later. One more word from our sponsor, BlockFi. Their new interest account allows you to securely deposit your Bitcoin or Ether at BlockFi and receive 6% annual interest paid monthly in cryptocurrency. This rate actually compounds, so you receive a 6.2% APY, which is very attractive given the alternatives. So you can actually take your Bitcoin, you can deposit it with BlockFi and get paid an interest rate of 6% in return. Go check out BlockFi.com slash POMP. Again, BlockFi.com slash POMP to sign up and start earning interest on your crypto today. Um, the, the next piece in the series is uh, Bitcoin is not too volatile. Uh, elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, so this is one that um, I think probably at, at, at deeper levels and more reasonably um, causes people to, to struggle around, okay, so um, there's a, a group of uh, whack jobs out there saying that Bitcoin is money, but every time I look at it on the screen, it changes, you know, five percent or it's down twenty percent mm-hmm. over, you know, a month or you know, or up twenty percent, or up twenty percent. <laughs> like, how could that ever be money? That that concept is foreign to what I know money to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but realistically, um, and um, v- Vijay Boyapati had a great quote on this uh, Stefan Levera podcast where um, he said that. Um, and I'll butcher the the quote, but it was along the lines of um, 
establishment, uh, uh, yeah, establishment economists deride the fact that uh, Bitcoin is volatile as, some, as if something can go from not existing to a stable form of money overnight. Mm-hmm. And what we're what we're realistically seeing right now is the monetization of a of a good on the free market for the first time since mm-hmm. gold. Um, there's no way for that to happen without volatility. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, if you know, again. I have no idea how many, you know, literally how many people use Bitcoin, but thinking about it in the order of magnitude of 60 million or 70 million people, um, everyone is trying to figure out exactly what this is, what the future of it will be, how resilient it will be. Um, What we're witnessing in terms of volatility is price discovery as orders of magnitude, more people are educating themselves and beginning to adopt Bitcoin and beginning to, you know, at, at a base level, starting out with a very small percentage of their wealth, but then as they learn more, increasing. And, and while that adoption is increasing by orders of magnitude, it's met with a fixed supply. Mm-hmm. So if we think about adoption waves, and again, we don't know specific numbers, but thinking of each adoption wave representing an order of magnitude. Um, so from 2016 to today, maybe something like 5 million to to 60 million or 10 million to 100 million, Mm -hmm. Um, whatever it may be, it's that relative increase in demand met with a supply that over that same period only increased by 10%. Mm -hmm. That that fixed supply is what creates the volatility, but it is also the fundamental source of demand. People are looking at this, they're starting to ask themselves for the first time in their lives, what is money and whether Bitcoin is a superior successor to to the legacy systems. Um, There's no way way to to educate yourself on bitcoin and and as a market to you know all all of a sudden at one time converge on a stable form of value mm-hmm. um, and so the bitcoin's volatility is is a natural function uh, of that those adoption dynamics and and the ultimate supply curve of bitcoin and that over time if we think about the store of value people in bitcoin who who have been around for for a year or two years or three years they think about it in, in the context of longer time horizons than day to day and then in addition to that it, it's important to recognize that bitcoin doesn't exist in, in a vacuum and so if you're an institutional investor and thinking about oh I, you know how can i have exposure to bitcoin with all this volatility the way that i think about it is in, in the context of the diversification of an entire portfolio mm-hmm. so um, Bitcoin's volatility is muted when you think about you know a one percent position or a five percent f- position, and what are the attributes of or what is what are the vol- volatility of other assets that you hold. But that when you look at the dynamics and, and, and why Bitcoin has a fundamental demand, that being that it has a fixed supply, that over any long time horizon that you look at Bitcoin, whether it's three months, six months, one year, two years. It is storing value, um, whereas the dollar may be stable day to day. But if you look at the long-term chart of, of the purchasing power of the dollar, um, it, it loses value by design. Mm-hmm. And so, central bankers all over the world have, you know, kind of um, chastised Bitcoin as being, a, you know, no one uses it as a, as a as a method of payment. It's too volatile to be a currency. When in reality, we're just witnessing price discovery um, on the logical path of of a monetization of a good on the free market, which is you know, a fundamentally disruptive idea. Absolutely. And, and I think that's part of the power of it, right? Which is uh, once people understand that, then, um, you know, as you said, it, I really like this idea of, because it was my journey, I think it's most people's journey, uh, 
it's almost like you test it out a little bit, right? And you start to store a little bit of wealth and then you gain confidence, you gain understanding, you, you gain conviction really. And then it, it um, very slowly you start to put more and more of your wealth into uh, this asset. And eventually, you know, people start getting to very high percentages of their wealth stored once they're educated and they're convicted, um, which I think is, uh, you know, a, a lot of people will just follow that path. Yeah, and I, and I also think by definition, when you buy Bitcoin for the first time or make that leap, often likely for speculative reasons, you by definition know very little. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that that first you know, foray into it or kind of, I don't, I don't want to say leap of faith, but the first time that you choose to do that, that's what sucks you into the rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. Then you have skin in the game. Then you're more interested in learning more as to, as to why you just did what you did. Um, and then the natural consequence of that is if you're buying something, knowing very little about it, you're, you're, you're making a less informed decision, but then as you educate yourself, you start to understand the how, the why, and your convic- conviction level increases, which translates into uh, becoming, a, as Trace Mayer would say, a hodler of last resort and continuing to accumulate and, t- and continuing to um, shift the, the balance of whatever whatever savings that you do have increasingly into Bitcoin, mm-hmm. but, but you can only kind of get that education once you're already in the game. For sure. The next piece you wrote is uh, Bitcoin does not waste energy. And this is probably one of my favorite topics to, uh, to talk to people about, but elaborate on um, you know, what, what you kind of covered in this piece. Yeah. So, um, and this one, I, I really swung for the fences where, you know, th- there are a lot of reasons when you, when you get into the um, kind of the brass tacks of the energy that Bitcoin does consume. There's a lot of um, kind of micro level explanations that we can th- that we can defend the the energy use of Bitcoin. So, uh, and there are a number of them. It's it's kind of this it's this idea that um, realistically the, the sources of energy consumption or production that Bitcoin is going to compete for are not going to um, replace or um, compete for the same energy supply that say powers your home. Um, there's there's the idea that um, a large portion of the Bitcoin network in terms of the energy that it consumes is is renewable um, and that that you know kind of you bitcoin only consumes the um, amount of energy that the free market will bear and that you know as a consequence of bitcoin and because of the the dynamics of the energy that it can consume that that it will actually lead to um, more stable energy grids and that you know it will actually um, advance the the development of renewable source of energy. I kind of stayed away from from that aspect, but aspect, but I really went to the first principles. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's this idea, and I, I use Venezuela as an example. But before I even go there, it's the idea of kind of asking that question of like what money is, mm-hmm. and and in order to understand or to to form an appreciation for the amount of energy that Bitcoin does consume, you have to have an appreciation for the problem that it's solving. Mm-hmm. If you do not have an appreciation for the magnitude of the problem that it's solving, the amount of any energy that it consumes will never be deemed justifiable. Mm -hmm. But then when you understand money and you understand that money is the backbone that allows our economies to function, it's the good that um, allows all other economic activity to be coordinated, you you start to understand the weight of the problem. And then when you look at it in the context of, okay, what happens to an economy when a form of money hyperinflates? Mm -hmm. Looking at um, Argentina or Venezuela, or or even Turkey. Any you know, there, there's a number of any hyperinflationary uh, scenarios that you can look at. The the economic consequences are devastating. Mm-hmm. And that um, and Safe has a quote about this where if you know if 
if Bitcoin prevents one one instance of hyperinflation, then all of the energy consumed, you know, will be a bargain bargain basement price. And, it, and it's that idea that if we think about kind of everything that we use in our daily lives is in some form or fashion a uh, an energy output. There's an energy input to create an energy output. And that that money is the economic good that allows for the coordination of all those energy inputs and outputs mm-hmm. to to get things that we take for granted every day in our in our lives. So not thinking about the most complicated things, but just thinking about the basic things. Food at the grocery store, you know, basic health care, clean water, you know, sanitation, those type of things. All of that is only possible with a stable form of money. And when you don't have a stable form of money, those basic necessities cannot be fulfilled. Mm-hmm. And so the, the approach that I took in, in Bitcoin does not waste energy is this idea that if, if everything that we consume in our daily lives is a derivative of some energy consumption, and if, and if we want that to be sustained, then we need a stable money supply. So it, it, it's this idea that every other form of, of energy consumption is a derivative of money, so therefore the best and highest use of energy should first be to s- secure the money supply, because if we don't secure the money supply, every, everything else is moot. Um, and so I, I used an example where... You know, you look at Venezuela and not just the fact that they have, you know, gone into hyperinflation, but recognizing that Venezuela is one of the most oil-rich or energy-rich countries in the world. And if you look at their energy production year over year over the last five years, it's plummeted. Mm-hmm. Literally, they can't get the, the tra- their trading currency or oil out of the ground because they don't have a reliable form of money. And so when we think into the future... It is not that Bitcoin is going to, you know, the energy that's consumed by the Bitcoin network could otherwise go to power homes. And, and if we didn't have Bitcoin's energy consumption, we could, you know, you know have, you know, um, you know, warm homes for six million more poor people. It's that if we don't have that form of money, everything else deteriorates. And so kind of the first order function should be let's secure the Bitcoin network and and then everything else you know will follow from there for sure and and you know one of the things that i think a lot about um and mainly uh one of my partners and i uh jason williams um we one of the first things we did in bitcoin and, and crypto was uh we built a mining facility at a uh, renewable energy plant right so we had made an investment um and they take car tires they turn it into oil steel and power sell the oil and the steel that power essentially was um kind of opex free right because the business was profitable by taking the tires and selling the oil and steel power source build the mine right there rather than sell the power to the grid very uh, economic um, advantage for us, but also we sought out a renewable energy source because low cost power. I think a lot about the fact that um, there's almost this game of like cat and mouse or like hide and seek around the world of people who want to mine or secure the network. They are looking for lowest cost power. Lowest cost power is usually attributable to renewable energies. And so they are actively spending money, time, energy, intellectual capital to go seek out those renewable energy sources and then to help monetize them. And so if that continues to play out, can we actually drive innovation and drive um, the kind of build out of renewable energy sources simply because of Bitcoin securing the money supply? Yeah. And I, and I, and I do think that there is merit to that in the sense that, um, and, I'll, and I'll use an example of one of our, our good friends in Texas, Gideon Powell, who's um, out building um, infrastructure in West Texas for um, 
for greenfield mining, Bitcoin mm-hmm. mining. And you know, one of the things out in West Texas, there's obviously a lot of natural gas, but there's also an incredible amount of uh, wind power mm-hmm. and, and solar power. And so I do think that, um, you know, one, Bitcoin mining will increasingly go out to the periphery where the cheapest sources of power actually exist. Um, and then it also incentivizes the, the lowest marginal cost of power. And, and, it is, and, and Bitcoin energy consumption is unique um, in the sense that it's demanded 24-7, which mm-hmm. is a dream for either an energy grid or an energy producer. Um, when you think about you know, kind of any network that requires a significant amount of infrastructure, you know, whether it's a telecom network or, or an energy grid, there's generally peak demand and trough demand, um, and there's generally you know, only a few points in, you know, during the year where peak demand is reached or a few points in the day, and that, that, that the, the, the nature of Bitcoin's energy demand being that it's 24-7, specifically, or I think you know, tangibly will lead to you know, the, you know, I guess, innovation around um, technology in, in renewable energy, because one of the biggest challenges, and again, I'm not an energy expert, but it's just common sense, that you know, the storage of that, you know, of that renewable energy is costly. And it's one of the biggest challenges. But if, if you reliably know that you're consuming power 24-7, um, the storage of that power becomes um, less important because mm-hmm. you're, you're literally consuming it as fast as you can produce it. For sure. That, that makes complete sense to me. Um, the next one in the series is Bitcoin fixes this. Uh, what, what does that mean and what would you cover there? Yeah, so there I, I went back to um, what we talked about a little bit earlier of really what brought me to Bitcoin and really kind of the idea, you know, one, one, Bitcoin fixes this is, you know, something that um, the, the Twitter sphere, you know. It's a great meme. It's a great meme. And it's, it's this, at a high level, it's the idea that, uh, a stable form of money or a sound form of money or a form of money that's divorced from the state that's not subject to um, the, the political whims of a few people sitting around a table, or not necessarily even political whims, that's not fair to say to the Fed, but you know, kind of a, a limited knowledge base or a limited scope of ability of you know, a, a very few number of people managing the money of an economy that supports 300 million people, that as we shift to a world of, of, of sound money, of, of a stable form of money, that there will be a natural balancing effect that will, will solve a lot of the, the problems that people can feel around them but maybe not maybe haven't identified um, is, is fundamentally driven by um, an unstable form of money or an easy form of money. So that's, that's the high-level context of, of Bitcoin fixes this. But then specifically what I talk about in this piece is really, you know, again, I think about the reason why Bitcoin exists is because ultimately you know, some very smart individual, forward-thinking people solve a problem that many people did not and created a, a technology that, that created a solution for that problem. Um, the practical reason why Bitcoin exists is because the forms of money that we're using today are not reliable mm-hmm. and, and are subject to not just debasement, but but sy- sy- systematic debasement and, and really um, debasement that the legacy system is inherent on in order to function. And so what, what Bitcoin fixes this is about, and specifically in the Gradually Then Suddenly piece, is the idea that Bitcoin fixes QE. Um, each time, and when, you know, we're, we're just starting to see, I don't know if we can officially say that you know, what the Fed is doing in the repo markets is officially QE4, but QE4 will be announced in short order, mm-hmm. um, in, in, in my view. It, it, it's inevitable at this piece, 
ECB has already signaled um, additional QE. I don't think the Bank of Japan ever stops. And, um, and I think they've even gone as far, um, you know, the ECB, et cetera, as saying that uh, it's kind of like the new normal, right? Like, like it's not just going to be another, um, you know, uh, limited point in time where there's QE introduced. It is basically this is now uh, necessary to continue uh, kind of the charade, right? Yeah, and, and, and really, if, if people are interested in understanding that, um, the reason why that is is because of the size of the fiat credit systems. Um, the, the size of the credit system and the degree of leverage that exists cannot be sustained unless the base money supply is increased. The whole system is based on that dynamic of uh, the, the relative scarcity of the base money to the, the overall size of the credit system. But then when you recognize that all QE is designed to do or what it's designed to enable is to allow an unsustainable system to be sustained, um, QE and the way that the central bankers view kind of in managing their economies is I need to expand the credit system because if I'm not expanding the credit system, then I have a de- deflationary environment. The mm-hmm. only thing that was worse than inflation to a, to a central banker is deflation. And in this context, if they just let the system go, it would it would collapse on itself. And so that is the reason why QE is not just a a, a tool that will be periodically used. It's actually a necessary function to to the way that the existing system is constructed. And so when we think about Bitcoin and those of us that, that, that recognize this problem and why this, this form of medium that is Bitcoin is superior to this legacy system that is, you know, Fed puts more QE in so that the credit system can increase. We get to a situation where we have too more, de- too much debt, and then we need to put more base money in, which is QE, that, that ultimately now Bitcoin represents monetary competition. Mm-hmm. If, if people um, believe that, that, is the, that the path to um, ec- economic stability or, or prosperity is central banks managing the money supply and managing the economy from central command, they have their legacy monetary system. But for those of us that are, that are starting to see clearly and to, and to, to see that this is a never-ending cycle, that, that we increasingly opt out. And so by, by Bitcoin having a fixed supply that, again, I, you know, we all think about Bitcoin having a fixed supply, but really at a, at a root level, um, Bitcoin supply is dictated by consensus. So um, while we think about it as a fixed supply, it's, it's really only fixed so long as the market participants that are involved want it to be fixed. And then it so happens that uh, a group of rational economic actors that have independently opted into a fixed supply currency system would not, in an overwhelmingly, you know, large way, form a consensus to, to debase that currency. We basically now have monetary policy by consensus rather than than by fiat. And and, you know, kind of over the course of the 20th century, whether it was, you know, the conversation or the, the debate between Hayek and Keynes, um, ultimately we ended up in a world where, where we have Keynesian and monetarist debasement of the money supply um, as the mechanism to achieve economic stability. Um, that was always an intellectual debate. The Keynesians won. Um, now we have free market competition. Mm-hmm. We've got two systems um, that is every single day being evaluated by market participants all over the world, and the signal of value going up in Bitcoin is more people looking at this question and coming out on the side that, hey, if I was contributing value today, I would rather be opting into a system that had a fixed supply rather than one that I know is going to be debased. So kind of in that general context, it is, you know, Bitcoin fixes this at, at a root level or at a fundamental level. It is presenting a monetary option that, that is an opt-out path for the legacy system.
Yeah, it, it's fantastic, and I think that's why people have gravitated towards that idea, um, which you just articulated. Uh, the last in the series is uh, Bitcoin, not blockchain, which is a play on words, I think, of uh, a lot of people saying, you know, blockchain, not Bitcoin. Um, describe a little bit about what you covered in this in this last one. Yeah, so, and then also just to say for all the listeners, it won't be the last one. Yeah, it's the, the last one he's published. Yeah, the last one that I've published. And so, again, th- this one is is getting to, you know, coming back to the center of if Bitcoin fixes this is, you know, really the, the economic rationale for, for why Bitcoin exists and, and kind of addressing this problem statement between kind of what was something that we were all forced to opt into versus now having an option to opt out, um, that, that Bitcoin, not blockchain, is then going back and focusing on the technicals of Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And it's it's helping, you know, it, it's expanding upon the idea of why Bitcoin can't be copied. Um, but then it's also trying to distill for people why a lot of, a lot of people, I think, look at um, the and I, I I try not to reference the Bitcoin community, but for for the people that that have come to this view that Bitcoin is the only blockchain that works, it's the only blockchain that matters. There's this idea that somehow we have this closed-minded view, um, and that oh you know what what's the fun of this whole thing if we you know only have one currency to rule them all? Um, and really, it's not an ideological belief. Like it's not something that we just want. It's something that we have reasoned to based on first principles. And so what I walk through in, in Bitcoin, not blockchain, is trying to give people kind of some tools at a really base level as to how Bitcoin works and then build up from those kind of base building blocks to then walk through the rationale as to, okay, now if you have this baseline as to how Bitcoin actually works at a technical level and how the currency interplays with the blockchain and what the blockchain actually is, then I can walk you back up to the um, to the, the first principles as to why we think that this then obsoletes every other form of, of currency. And so kind of walking into a little bit of that, it's, or if I was to distill it down into ideas, it is that you know, first recognize that, that Bitcoin was designed to solve a very specific problem. Mm-hmm. Um, it was designed to solve a problem that exists in modern money mm-hmm. um, and, and that the blockchain was a tool that um, the founder of Bitcoin used specifically to remove a central third party from that equation. How can we validate um, and verify either the scarcity of the asset or that that asset has not previously to be spent without a central party? The only way to do that is for all parties to have a copy of all of the all of the transactions that have ever happened. For sure, the the um, thing that I think is so interesting about this is you're taking a single asset, right, uh, which is Bitcoin, and you're coming at it from so many different angles, and some of it is uh, you're. Um, disproving or arguing against the detractions. You're also um, kind of enhancing or, or uh, highlighting some of the positive arguments. Um, and, and so uh, I'm very interested to see uh, kind of how many of these you can write, right? And, and um, I think that there's a lot more to go, right? So, so I'm, I'm super pumped about it. Remind us where folks can go and, uh, and read them. Yeah, so um, all the blog is, or all the series is available at Unchained Capital dot com slash blog um, and you can you can there's a there's a tag for gradually and suddenly so mm-hmm. they're all listed there on the unchained capital website um, and then I also each week you can sign up for the newsletter um, on the website and then I also distribute them on Twitter each time I release them so we'll be out with another one um, next week which will be uh, 
Uh, Bitcoin is not backed by nothing, which is one of the things that, you know, again, a lot of the times that I write, I, I think to the institutional mm-hmm. audience that, that, you know, one, it's a, it's a broad resource that, that anyone in Bitcoin that has friends that are interested can, can point to. But then we're also thinking about educating future clients of Unchained. Mm-hmm. So it's creating a repository that as each person is going, you know, down the rabbit hole, these are all questions that most people come to in the past and have to overcome to kind of come to this point of view that Bitcoin likely will be, um, and, and I think the, the probability is increasing with every day, that Bitcoin is a, will be a global reserve asset. For sure. Um, where, where do we go from here, right? Like, what does the future of Bitcoin look like, and, and how does that unfold or evolve, uh, in your opinion, given what you know today? Um, so, one, I think that you know, it, it, it's increasingly... Um, d- not practical for people to ignore Bitcoin. So I think that we're getting to the the point in time, and I know that that, um, through Morgan Creek, you guys have started to get um, institutional investors involved in um, not only having exposure to to Bitcoin, but then also infrastructure that's being built around Bitcoin. I think it, you know, an economic system that has a purchasing power of of 200 billion, um, and each time that it doesn't die, um, and and then people see that, that it continues to rise in value, they, they can ignore, you know, fewer and fewer people can ignore that reality. Um, and then as, you know, Fortune 500 companies get involved, like Square and the CME, um, that provides a lot of cover for us where um, it's not it's not this medium that's just for criminals. It's not this digital nothingness. It's it's actually, um, there there is rationale and there is reason as to why there's fundamental demand. I think that where we go from here, I think that, um, one, we recognize that still very few people hold Bitcoin. The, mm-hmm. the people that do, um, for an even few num- fewer number of those people, does it represent a significant portion of their wealth? That um, that educational resources are continuing to increase, and that people are you know kind of in an exponential way educating themselves on Bitcoin. I think that we're gonna we're gonna see a really interesting dynamic between Bitcoin adoption and in the cycles of QE. I think that ultimately, this the state and central banks are going to be, um, there is going to be a fight in terms of control. Um, and I think that, you know, I don't, you know, there's no crystal ball in terms of, of how that fight plays out. But I think that, um, you know, kind of heavier regulation, um, kind of you know, trying to, you know, whether it's the, the Fed, you know, combining with the ECB or the BOJ to, to in some way try to deregulate it out of existence, mm-hmm. I think it's going to be very difficult to do. I think the positive side is that, they only probably get there until Bitcoin, or not until Bitcoin represents a trillion dollars of wealth or two trillion dollars of wealth. Um, and I think the path that you know where we where we go from today to there is um, increasing education, but then also um, building infrastructure. Like a lot of people look at Bitcoin and and you know say like oh this could never be a form of money but what they don't recognize is, or I don't want to say they don't recognize but it's not looking at the long game and it's thinking a very uh, short-sighted context of, you know, Bitcoin went from zero to where it is today in 10 years. Um, if we think about the internet, we, we have to build infrastructure to increase usability, increase security, um, kind of give people confidence that when they're storing this, they're storing it securely. So I think the, the next phase is going to be, I think we're still trying to solve custody solutions mm-hmm. that work. And so that's what we're focused on at Unchained. I think we're, we're going to see a lot of competition in that space and a lot of different models tried. But as we perfect those models, um, that gives people increased uh, comfort that you know whatever assets that they store in Bitcoin are secure as 
people gain conviction in that, then it, then that further increases adoption. For sure. I, I think it's a very clearly articulated path and, and one that's very likely. Um, before I finish up, I always do rapid fire uh, questions. What do you think is the most important company in Bitcoin other than Unchained? Um, Square or Trezor? Or? Oh, Square. Yeah. You, so so either so in on ramp and those that are building hardware to mm-hmm. um, to help people secure their own their own Bitcoin and that that allows Bitcoin to be decentralized and allows kind of for the the properties of decentralization and censorship resistance to increase over time. So somebody uh, was literally tweeting at me this morning saying, has anyone ever answered with Square? And I said, I can't remember if someone has or not, but there would be a very strong argument. So so I I didn't see that. So yeah, yeah, that's that's even better. (laughs) What uh, what's the one regulation you would change or improve if you could? Either um, the qualified custodianship or um, AML KYC. Yeah. I think that those are both areas that um, we have. One, we are in this world where we are we are um, trying to, as a, not necessarily as a collective, but through, via competition, solving different models as to how to secure Bitcoin, um, requiring a lot of regulatory um, overhead to, you know, just put a, a, um, a regulator's view as to, to what in Bitcoin qualifies as someone that can actually secure Bitcoin mm-hmm. um, is is trying to you know, fit a um, square peg in a round hole. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then on the other side, I think that um, and this is something that we struggle with as a company. Um, you know, as, as Bitcoiners, I think everyone is is increasingly conscious of privacy and how mm-hmm. important that is. Um, but then, as a financial institution, we are required to to um, comply with certain laws that I think inevitably and really undebatably create risk for a lot of law-abiding citizens. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, it, it's, it's the in, unintended consequences of, of those AML KYC policies that um, create, create risk for people while mm-hmm. maybe well-intentioned or, you know, there's probably a range of people who think well-intentioned or not well-intentioned, but there are unintended consequences. And so, you know, but those are the rules. And so we are, as a financial institution, we comply with them. Um, but I think that we are now looking at a new medium. And so both on the qualified custodianship and AML KYC, I think we have to recognize kind of what it is, that what, it, what the subject matter is that we're dealing with and what is the right way, um, whether there is a right way, to, to, to regulate. Mm-hmm. For sure. What's the most controversial thought you ha- you have in Bitcoin? So when you say it, the most people will be like, oh, I disagree with that. Uh, okay. So a lot of people believe that uh, everybody gets to define Bitcoin by running a full node. <laughs> um, I don't. I think that um, what a node allows you to do is assay whether something is Bitcoin or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... You know, it, it may be splitting hairs, but, um, you know, I, th- I think about it in the context of, you know, you can change Bitcoin and you can fork Bitcoin. If you do not win a consensus, then it's not Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And so so that's that's like that's the first principle that I use to say, you know, a node doesn't allow you to define Bitcoin for yourself. It just allows you to assess whether you're in consensus of the network. Mm-hmm. What's the most important book you've ever read? Maybe the Bitcoin Standard. Uh, um, Safe Dean won't mind that. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely up there. Um, A World in Debt is up there. 
And then uh, the road to serfdom. The road to serfdom may be, I think, kind of from on a societal level, um, the most important. Yeah, I haven't read that. I, might, I, I need to pick that one up. Yeah, I definitely recommend it for for anyone that's you know, whether you're interested in Bitcoin or not. It, you know, it's a, uh, Hayek is a, a economist, but he's a philosopher as much as, a, as an economist, and it really um, the road to serfdom provides a, a really first principle view as to why socialism fails mm-hmm. and, and why it is so um, um, not only in contrast but is in opposition to individual freedoms. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I do recommend that to everybody. Got it. Uh, I wrap up each podcast letting the guests ask me one question, but first we talk aliens. Um, believer, non-believer, did you go to Area 51? <laughs> did not go to Area 51. Uh don't think about it a lot. Okay. I, I think just on probabilities, probably. Yeah. But I, I find that's the most common answer, right? Yeah. It's just look, you know, who knows? But on a mathematical basis, you know, that there's a lot of uh, a lot of space out there, and uh, it, it is highly likely more than anything. Uh, what one question do you have for me to finish up? What is the first state or nation to to buy Bitcoin? Or adopt it. Um, okay, so two different questions. Adopt first, buy. Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that we're recording this in, uh, what is it, September 2018, or uh, 2019. Um, I'm guessing a state's already bought some. I don't know who, but you know, I, I would have some uh, kind of likely candidates. But my guess is that somebody somewhere uh, has bought some, even if it's a little bit, um, and, uh, and are holding it. Um, I don't know if it's in like uh, central bank reserve, right? Because I think that that might be a little aggressive, but um, definitely states have some Bitcoin, right? Through seizures and stuff like that. Um, but actually actively purchasing it, um, I, th- I think probably has happened. Uh, in terms of adopting it, um, I-, I think it's going to be uh, the reverse of what everyone is thinking. So it's not going to be the developed world. It's going to be some developing country, um, maybe one that suffers from hyperinflation, maybe not. Um, but it's also likely going to be uh, attached to size. So the smaller a country is, uh, probably the less bureaucratic it is, which also means that there's less risk because the-, the least amount of people are um, kind of uh, going to be subjected to the experiment, if you will. Um, and so, you know, you see these countries like the Maltas, the Marshall Islands, you know, all those things. I don't know if it's that small as much as it might be um, a country with, you know, kind of low single digit millions of people. Um, and uh, and the thing I'm waiting for is like the first country that gets a Bitcoiner as the leader, I think a lot of stuff will change very quickly. Right. So it's almost like you have to have somebody at the very top which believes or understands, and therefore the top-down approach will uh, accelerate their embracing of it or, or their adoption of it. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I think that we're sitting here in Wyoming, so uh, you know the, the the state here is doing a lot of things to um, create regulatory certainty for for crypto and Bitcoin-related companies. So um, I think that you know it, it likely is some some entity that has. Uh, or some state or, or nation that has, you know, the um, kind of forward thinking, um, mm-hmm. kind of is investing the resources to to attract the type of people, and that as a consequence of education and familiarity, that um, that they see the benefit in terms of securing a portion of whatever is in their treasury reserve. So mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to see. For sure. Where uh, where can people find you? Twitter, uh, elsewhere online. 
Uh, I'm generally only active on Twitter, so Parker A. Lewis, at Parker A. Lewis on Twitter. And then uh, follow, follow the Gradually and Suddenly series, reach out to me, um, love to engage. So Awesome. And uh, let people know, or let Parker know if you're uh, going to be in Austin, Texas um, as well. So uh, Yeah, we, we, we do host the Austin Bitcoin Developers Meetup. Uh, it, Justin Moon organizes it, um, but we host it at our uh, Unchained Capital uh, Hard to say headquarters, but but our office down in in Austin. So uh, if you're in Austin, we've got a, a you know increasing number of Bitcoiners there. So look us up. We're, we're around. Awesome, man. Thanks so much for doing this. All right, appreciate it. Hey everyone, Pop here. If you like this episode of Off the Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, simply go to the Off the Chain homepage. Scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off the Chain.